Innovation is everywhere. Bold ideas and innovations are of the here and now, just waiting to be discovered, just waiting to be implemented. While real progress doesn't happen overnight, it's anything but impossible. In the ever-evolving world of healthcare, simply being adaptable to change doesn't always cut it. Sometimes you need to be willing to lead it. On this episode of Boldly, we're discussing disruption, when shaking up status quo processes can lead to transformative results. Joining us to share his story is Dr. Duncan Rosario, Chief of Surgery at Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital. Dr. Rosario, welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Excellent. So let's get started. Uh, Dr. Rosario, what led you to become a physician? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, if I had to think of a, a single event, uh, uh, it would be my first trip back to, to visit family in India when I was uh, five years old. So as a uh, young child growing up in Canada, uh, it was a, a big culture shock seeing uh, uh, conditions in a developing country. And I, I, I realized on that and on subsequent uh, visits uh, how how life can be very arbitrary, how how luck can determine the resources we have, the opportunities we have. And um, I, I realized from a very early age how access to health care or a lack of access to health care can prevent us from living to our greatest potential. and And that, uh, with an, an innate interest in science uh, just sort of naturally led me towards a career in, in medicine and directly into surgery because uh, I like the I like the the ability to address issues and that's the great thing about surgery uh, most of the time when we see a patient we diagnose an issue we can fix things fix the issue and get patients back to living their lives to their greatest potential I can appreciate that uh, I think problem solving is a great uh, inspiration for many people. I have to ask you, you have a reputation for disrupting things a little bit. What sparked your motivation in this? Well, thank you very much for that compliment. Mm. I, I consider that a tremendous compliment, actually. Uh, when we look at the challenges that face us, in healthcare, whether they're challenges of capacity or challenges of funding or leadership, um, these challenges will not be addressed by doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. Excellent. Uh, I, I think unless we're willing to tolerate risk, unless we're willing to try something new, we will not get out of the uh, historic patterns that we have been in which have resulted in uh, us providing a certain level of health care in Canada and a certain level of access in Canada. And I think if you look at OECD ratings, Canada can do better. We have the capacity to do better. We have the knowledge. We have the resources to do better. And I think only by trying uh, new things and trying things that uh, the mainstream may consider disruptive, will we really be able to uh, Im improve uh, access and uh, um, uh, the health status of our, uh, of our population? Wow. So that is music to our ears here at Jewel. Uh, I think you know that we are very much aligned in, in the way we think. 
I want to give you an opportunity to talk specifically about your experience at uh, Oakville Trafalgar. I know that uh, you've taken a new approach to post-operative pain management. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about the process before. You know, what inspired you uh, to think that it could be done better and, uh, and, and what you did a little bit around that to uh, change things up and what your results were. So, uh, well, thank you very much. Um, pain, pain is a significant post-operative issue uh, in the field of surgery. And uh, this has been an issue for, 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 for decades. From the very beginning of surgery, the issue about how to do surgery safely has been predominantly about the development of anesthesia and pain control. And um, when I became the, uh, the chief of surgery uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, one of the first things I started doing is having a, a regular uh, weekly meeting with our chief of anesthesia. And our, our chief of anesthesia at the time uh, was Dr. Joe Kay. And Dr. Kay had a special interest and special training in pain. Uh, Dr. Kay trained uh, uh, in Boston in advanced pain control. And we started to have regular discussions uh, because I know with uh, larger cases that we do, when we do large inpatient surgery, colon resections, uh, when we do big cases, patients have their pain managed superbly. We have a whole team involved. We use protocols. We use best practices. And patients attain a great outcome. But um, that's, that's about 20% of what we do. That's inpatient surgery. What about the other side? What about the 80% of what we do, which is day surgery? So when I do gallbladder surgery or uh, hernia repair or surgery for breast cancer, uh, most of the surgery we do nowadays is day surgery. Patients go home the same day. Do they have the same access to uh, leading class protocols for pain management? And the answer was no. And that's sort of where this whole discussion started uh, about a year and a half ago. That's amazing. It's so interesting, right? We've shifted to mostly day surgeries, uh, and yet that is an area that didn't shift with it. Exactly. And, and so that, that mismatch is, is really what led me to uh, not only have further discussions with Dr. K, but uh, review best practices. And we found uh, um, a group of anesthetists uh, and uh, surgeons in Toronto at North York General Hospital who were doing some very cutting edge work uh, and changed the approach to the uh, to pain control in the day surgical patient population. And that's sort of where this got started over a year ago. So how would you, like if it's easy to summarize, how would you say before taking this approach, what was the general way that you would manage pain with, um, with a day surgery patient? So, so the standard management of pain has not changed in many decades. As uh, many physicians know, um, if a patient has a surgical procedure, you prescribe them with 30 tablets of pain medication. This is what we were taught in residency. This is what I was taught in medical school when I started in 1988. Uh, we used to use Tylenol with codeine, Tylenol number three. There are a variety of other equivalent pain medications, five milligram morphine tablets, uh, hydromorphone, Percocet, oxycodone. They all work in very similar ways. They're all narcotics, so they're all opioid medications. And the historic prescribing pattern was 
uh, if a patient had an ingrown toenail removed, if they had hernia surgery, uh, if they had surgery in general, we would prescribe 30 tablets of a narcotic, and that was us doing our responsible prescribing. Gotcha. And so I'm guessing the idea was that patients were to sort of self-regulate. If they felt they needed it, they'd take it. If they didn't, they didn't. That the general uh, that idea? Was our, that was our, absolutely, that was our assumption. But um, as, uh, as we know very well, not only in medicine, but in science, if, if you want to improve things, you need to measure them. And so this started with uh, uh, an initial question, how many tablets of narcotic uh, are actually being used in the day surgical population and uh, uh, led by one of the uh, anesthesia physicians at North York General, Dr. Srikandaraja, um, they, they led a study and they demonstrated that uh, uh, up to 70 to 80 percent of narcotics were not being used. That uh, if you optimize the way you approach pain, you can significantly reduce the use of narcotics. And that's what led us to, to move from uh, what we do on the inpatient population to attempting to do the same thing for the outpatient population. So uh, historical uh, prescribing patterns, instead of prescribing 30 tabs of an equivalent narcotic, we 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 decided that we would use the same best practices that we use for inpatients, apply it to our day surgery population, and start to take measurements. And so if you put together a protocol, and the protocol that we use uh, has, in essence, four parts. Uh, the first part is what's called preemptive analgesia, and that means you give patients specific pain medications before you uh, cause the surgical insult that causes pain. So what we do now is uh, before patients have surgery, they receive uh, a dose of Tylenol, uh, acetaminophen is the generic name, and we typically use a one gram dose. Patients receive uh, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, so an aspirin class medication. And uh, in selected patients, we use another class of medications called a gabapentinoid. But most of our patients receive acetaminophen, uh, they receive an NSAID like ibuprofen or celecoxib, and they receive this before surgery. And the studies demonstrate that if you block the transmission of pain, that's one of the key ways to reduce post-operative pain. So step one, give patients pain medication before you have the operation. Step two is blocking the transmission of, uh, of pain. And it's well established. If one goes to the dentist, the dentist puts in a needle and uses a, a, a medication, typically lidocaine, to block the transmission of pain. But we have longer-acting agents. Uh, Bupivacaine is one example. And if you, um, if you administer the appropriate dose of uh, this long-acting freezing, either before surgery or after the operation, you can significantly improve pain control for eight to 10 hours. So that was step two, uh, optimizing the intraoperative use of pain blocking medication like bupivacaine. And then step three was uh, changing the way we prescribed uh, pain medication because it's, it's well established in the anesthesia literature that if you use a combination of uh, 
acetaminophen and an NSAID after surgery, you can significantly reduce and in some cases eliminate the need for opioids completely. So we, uh, with the assistance of our colleagues at North York General and our colleagues at the University of Western Ontario, who have been investigating this as well, we put together a standardized prescription because we know that if you make things easy for physicians, it's more likely to be adopted and used. So we produced a standardized prescription and uh, this standardized prescription has two parts. It ha- there's one part, which is the prescription itself, uh, which is typically one gram of Tylenol every six hours for two days, whether you have pain or not. Followed, uh, and at the same time, uh, ibuprofen or Advil, 400 milligrams every six hours, whether you have pain or not. And then instead of 30 tablets of an opioid, we prescribe 10 tablets of an opioid, and we're using hydromorphone. Um, it's an agent with, uh, which is considered to have a, a lower uh, potential for habituation uh, or uh, a lower addictive potential. So we, we prescribe 10 tablets of hydromorphone, but on the prescription, we, we write, do not fill unless needed. And by needed, what we're instructing patients is if you're not having pain in the first six hours, then don't fill the hydromorphone unless you actually require it. So we instituted this prescription as well as an instruction sheet that explains this this new way of looking at pain. Instead of waiting until you have pain or getting behind the pain and then chasing it with narcotics, get on top of the pain with a preemptive dose of analgesia, a good dose of bupivacaine or freezing for, during the operation, and then after surgery, continuous 48 hours of acetaminophen and an NSAID. And interestingly enough, we found that 80% of our patients were using zero narcotics. That's amazing. In, in our day surgical population. Now that has to have broad implications. So obviously for the patient, but it has to also for you, the physician and the institution that you work in. Absolutely, because uh, uh, everyone is aware of uh, a significant issue we are having in North America and and in Ontario right now, which is a crisis of opioids. And uh, we hear about uh, an anesthetic opioid called fentanyl, but the reality is surgeons account for 56% of the first starts of opioids in Ontario. And if, uh, if you survey patients who have uh, addiction-related issues, a uh, significant number of them uh, will, will say that uh, the gateway drug for them, meaning the drug that led them first to start their problem with their opioid habituation was a prescription narcotic. So they had an operation, their pain wasn't well controlled, uh, they used predominantly a narcotic, and they became habituated to the narcotic. So what if we change our approach to pain? So what if patients are now have a clear understanding that for most day surgery procedures, opioids will not be required, that the objective is not to eliminate pain, but to maintain what we describe as functional status. Mm -hmm. That yes, you will have some discomfort after surgery. Our objective is to make it manageable, 
but the objective is not for an, any individual after surgery to have zero pain, but our objective is to maintain functional status, so to ensure uh, we can uh, mobilize, ambulate, attend to our needs in the washroom, attend to self-care needs, and be comfortable, uh, and if possible, do that without using narcotics. And one of our key strategies um, is uh, we assess patients after surgery. So um, as you may know, I have a, a big interest in virtual care. So one thing that I do uh, for my surgical patients is within 48 hours of surgery, I have a virtual visit. So I have a, a visit where the patient is on their smartphone or on their computer and I'm on my computer. We can see each other and we have a discussion. And uh, this allows me to discuss not only uh, what happened during surgery and answer their questions about the, uh, surgical aspects of their care. But one of my standard questions now is, did you need any hydromorphone and how many tablets did you use? And for the last year, I've been uh, logging that. And that allows me to assess that particular question, which is how many patients needed narcotics after day surgery? And surprisingly, to only 20% of my general surgery population used even a single tablet of hydromorphone. If you use this entire protocol, so preemptive analgesia, maximizing your dose of uh, freezing, bupivacaine, a multimodal or a combination approach uh, after surgery, as well as ensuring clear patient expectations. And this is a win-win. This is good for patients. This is good for physicians. It's good for the healthcare system because instead of thousands and thousands of tablets of narcotics circulating in the community, sitting in uh, medicine cabinets, accessible to uh, individuals who should not be having access to those medications. We've eliminated the uh, access, or we've eliminated some of the access, we've decreased some of the potential for habituation, and I think this is the responsible thing that surgeons need to do when it comes to uh, managing post-operative pain, but also looking after the health of the community. It's, uh, it's amazing. I have to ask you, in your opinion, is this a solution that can be scalable just about anywhere, across Canada, in other hospitals in Ontario? How, how wide could you see this scaling? I, I think this can be scaled uh, internationally. And there are uh, multiple other centers looking at uh, protocols like this as well. As I mentioned, we're, we're certainly not the first uh, hospital to use uh, protocols uh, like this. Uh, uh, North York General Hospital in Toronto, the University of Western Ontario, uh, Ken Leslie, uh, Dr. Leslie is a general surgeon from the University of Western Ontario, has led uh, much of the research in this particular field. And I mentioned Dr. Srikandaraja, but you, you had previously uh, brought up the issue of scaling. So uh, does it work with one physician, with one division? And so uh, sometimes the way you, you know whether something works is you try it out. And so I, I tried these protocols uh, for my patients. They were quite successful. We scaled it to the division of general surgery. So we have 11 general surgeons here in Oakville. Uh, and it's been very enthusiastically adopted by the general surgeons, and then we've progressed on scaling that to other divisions. Uh, because, of course, not, not all surgical procedures have, have the same amounts of post-operative pain. Having a knee replaced, having a, a bowel resection is very different from 
day surgical procedures like a hernia repair or gallbladder operation or a breast lumpectomy, but the what we learn with day surgery with certain patient populations can definitely be scaled, and uh, we're already realizing reductions in opioid prescribing in other patient populations. So pleased for you. I think that's excellent news. Um, you got to love to hear these kinds of good news stories coming out of, um, you know, coming out of hospitals here in Canada. Um, can I ask you, did you have any strategic allies um, in your desire to, to innovate in this area? Uh, absolutely. As you know, uh, change is a team sport. Uh, there's no one individual who can introduce a system change. Uh, we have a, a wonderful uh, a department of anesthesia. Uh, our current chief of anesthesia, Dinesh Netrasigamani, uh, was very supportive and uh, anesthesia has led the uh, pain protocols for decades. Uh, surgeons historically don't read anesthesia medical literature, uh, and so it is a, there's a bit of cross-pollination that needs to happen. Different divisions, different specialties. We, we need to talk. We need to share what we have learned, uh, see what's applicable to each other's patients, and it really is a collaboration and a cooperation. So we have a tremendously supportive uh, surgical program lead here, Julie McBrien. And uh, Ms. McBrien and Dr. Nethosugamani and I, uh, we work together on a lot of initiatives. And this is a typical example of, of what we have worked together on. So working together, bringing nursing staff, bringing administration, bringing physicians of a variety of backgrounds, not only anesthesia and surgery, but uh, family physicians. It's important for our colleagues in family medicine to, to know what we're doing because, uh, and this is something that was brought to my attention uh, very clearly by a colleague, uh, Dr. Crosby uh, from Cambridge, that if, if patients uh, go to see their family physician and their family physician isn't familiar with uh, some of the newer protocols that we're using, uh, they may be prescribing narcotics or uh, prescribing medication without fully understanding the approaches that we're using. And that, that's one of the reasons why I wrote a, a recent article in uh, the Medical Post, which is a, a medical periodical that's read by a, a large number of family physicians, to talk about some of these innovations and, and talk about the changes so that we all work together and we're all communicating together because change doesn't come from surgery, it doesn't come from anesthesia, it doesn't come from any one individual. It really is a systems approach. And that's how you implement lasting change. You, you work together, you, you bring innovations from the ground up, you explain, you get different groups on board. And to a large extent, you do that by explaining why this is good for you. Why is multimodal systems-based approach to the management of post-operative pain good for nursing staff, day surgery, anesthesia, uh, the Department of Surgery, patients, because fundamentally, this is good for all groups, good in different ways, uh, good for the community, good for uh, paying organizations. Um, so this has a wide variety of benefits. There are no downsides to optimizing pain control and minimizing narcotics, because certainly our objective is not to have poor pain control. We do not want patients to suffer. And uh, one of the key reasons 
that uh, we need to assess uh, pain control after surgery is because we know that a small percentage, typically on the order of 5 to 7% of patients, will need more than 10 tabs of equivalent of narcotic after surgery. We need to understand that. We need to be prepared to provide that pain medication um, to, to individuals who have greater needs. But uh, it's, it's that whole systems approach and working together collaboratively. That's really how you introduce lasting change, and that's how you make uh, system-level approaches that last. Hearing you speak, it sounds very simple, and I know it's not. I know that you have to work very hard. I know that you have to bring together the right uh, people. Uh, and I know that anytime you enact change, there's a great deal of effort. Uh, we try to end our podcast with a piece of advice that, that uh, we ask our uh, guests to leave with other physicians about. And, and what I would like to ask you is, you know, you, we think of you as a physician innovator in, in a particular area. How can physicians get more involved in and be at the, the decision-making table around changes such as those that, that you and your colleagues have been making at Oakville Trafalgar? That's an excellent question. Um, I, w w when you look at, uh, at a success, if you look behind the success, you will see a bit of a messy process. Uh, most of the time, you will see a series of failures, a few successes, more failures. Um, uh, Winston Churchill said, the key to success is to fail, but to fail with enthusiasm. So if you look at, our, at, the, at the current version of our multimodal prescription, this is version seven, because we tried a wide variety of other versions that were not successful. And when, when we collaborate, we're human beings. We will not always agree. Um, but there's a difference between arguing for argument's sake and having a voice and having your opinion heard. I think uh, the key in healthcare, the key to advancing our common interests really comes down to one word, and that is empathy. Yeah, so as you know, empathy means feeling other people's pain, other people's need, feeling what other people feel. If we have empathy, if we have true empathy for our colleagues, for our patients, for, uh, for, the, for the needs of our hospital's administration, for our Ministry of Health who has to organize and pay for the system, if we have true empathy, if we listen, with compassion, and we listen with an open mind. Uh, in my 18 months in the field of administration as the chief of surgery, the one thing that surprised me, I have to say, is the tre tremendous amount of goodwill and honesty that people have in the healthcare system. We're all working for the same goal. We're all working for the same objective. We all are approaching it slightly differently. And that's the nature of a discussion. You, you can have a situation uh, where two people have a discussion and they come away with very different opinions of what has happened. But I think if we listen to each other and we communicate with empathy and communicate with compassion, if we, if we make a real effort to understand what our colleagues, what the other person needs and what they want, uh, I think 
we can come to a consensus, and that consensus generally involves us all facing the same direction, doing the right thing for our patients. And fundamentally, that's what it's all about in healthcare, doing the right thing for patients. Because we all, we're all, even though we're all in healthcare uh, as providers of healthcare, we will all need healthcare uh, ourselves at some point in the future. It's one of the unwritten laws of life. So I think we have a fundamental responsibility to create great processes and uh, uh, great ways of providing that care. Not only is it great advice, I don't know uh, that it could be said any better. Uh, I can't thank you enough for your time today. So enjoyed uh, our conversation and so impressed with the work that you're doing. I am positive that our listeners are going to be uh, inspired, motivated, uh, and I think just come away with a really good feeling. Um, you know, we believe in the leadership of physicians. You're definitely an example of that, and uh, it's it's just great to hear the successes that you're having. Um, I can't thank you enough. Uh, is there anything else that you might like to, to mention today that, uh, that you haven't had an opportunity to do? I, I just wanted to thank you and thank Jewel for, for giving physicians a voice and for giving us the opportunity to uh, participate in the healthcare system as leaders. We're, we're used to being providers of care and, and believing that that's the, the limit of our responsibility. There, there's always a small minority of physicians who are interested in leadership, but I think all physicians need to participate in the leadership of the healthcare system. All caregivers need to participate in the leadership of the healthcare system. And I, I thank you and I thank Jewel for the opportunity to present my point of view and what we are doing in Oakville, and I look forward to collaborating together. Awesome. It's our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Boldly. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, Disruption, more than just a buzzword. Big thank you to Dr. Rosario for joining us and sharing his amazing story. Loved our podcast? Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud and leave a review. To learn more about Jewel, connect with us at jewelinquiries at cma.ca or visit us at jewelcma.ca. That's J-O-U-L-E-C-M-A dot C-A.